God's word, we're going to turn to Hebrews chapter 10 um, and read this passage in remembrance of Memorial Day today. We're going to be thanking God for those who gave their lives so we can have the freedoms that we have in this country. If you need a Bible, raise your hand, or if you need those binders, children, raise your hand, and the ushers will hand them to you. And please all stand and honor God's word as it's being read. And 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old receive their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning the events as yet unseen, and reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to that city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had been promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land that which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked the future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of his sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. 
by faith, Joseph, at the end of, the light, end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to a reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and of David and Samson and all the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, but some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute and afflicted and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, warning about in deserts and mountains, and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that has set before us, looking to Jesus, the author, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy who was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I want to pray for those who are traveling, particularly my parents and my sister and her family. We're also going to be praying that for this service, that we will glorify God in their absence. Amen. So join me as we pray together. Dear Lord, we thank you for the reading of your word. We thank you for you putting your truths down for us, Lord, so we can understand them. We thank you, Lord, for allowing us to live in this country, Lord, that has freedom. In this freedom, Lord, many have died so that we can have the freedom we have today. And many of us, Lord, as being African Americans, we remember other sacrifices that was made within this country of people who died, people who suffered harm, so that we can have particular freedom. And so, Lord, we thank you, Lord, for those who died for us. But we also want to thank you, Lord, for those who died, who are recorded in your word, who died in faith. To give us an example, Lord, whether we live free or whether we were slaves, we could still follow the example of the faithful, Lord. And so we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for bringing us as far as you have, Lord. We pray that you just cause us to have a faith that would endure. And we thank you, Lord, for those who are traveling, Lord. Let them be brought back to us so that we could see them again. We thank you, Lord, for their faithfulness to us. We thank you for my sister and for Andy, Lord. They are very faithful. They do their tasks, Lord, sometimes without thanks. 
We thank you, Lord, for Andy, how diligent he is with our finances. We never had to worry about anything being taken or anything not being faithfully recorded. He oftentimes gives more than he should, Lord, because he sees as soon as the money is taken in where we're lacking. And so, Lord, we thank you for his faithfulness. We thank you for the pastor, Lord. You know all that he has done for us, and many of us sometimes will forget that, Lord. But we thank you, Lord, for all he's done, Lord, and all that this church has been through. And so, Lord, we praise you for all these things. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's bring the choir forward. God, he's awesome, isn't he? I want to thank God for us living in this country of America. We live in a beautiful country, a free country. And this remains free because many have given their lives so that we could stay free. And we could be free. And that's what Memorial Day is all about. It's about those who died. It's not about all those who served, even though we thank all those who served. It's about those who died. They gave the ultimate sacrifice so that we could be free. And the point of remembering those who died is so that we would live in such a way that their deaths would not be in vain. We don't want to throw away that blood that was shed. And as I was thinking about that, God laid it on my heart to teach about his saints who lived and some who died. And we don't want that sacrifice to be in vain, but we don't want our sacrifice to be in vain. We don't want all the time that we put into Christ to be thrown away. And so that's what this message is about. It's about a faith that endures. We have all these saints in the scripture, and the reason we have them is so that we can have a memorial that reminds us that our faith is one that endures. And when you're looking at the book of Hebrews, the first thing you're going to see, thank you, is that the message is about a better covenant. The book of Hebrews is about God making an agreement with us that's better than the agreement that he made in the Old Testament. It's better because Jesus is a better messenger than the angels. It's better because Jesus is more faithful and a better prophet than Moses. It's better because Jesus is a high priest that's better than Aaron, and he offers a sacrifice that's better than any priest could ever offer. And he doesn't have to offer anything for his sins because he himself is perfect. It is a better covenant. It comes with better promises. So because of the work of Jesus, then we get into chapter 10 and we start seeing a transition. Because whenever you look at a book, especially the books that have kind of like a Pauline kind of feel to them, whenever you look at a book, you're going to see it's starting with what you should know and then it's going to jump to what you should do. And chapter 10 is that transition. And I love those transition points because they start to have that intersection between what our knowledge is and how we should live. And so then we get into chapter 10, verse 23, and it says this. 
Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Let us, right, us believers, hold fast the confession of our hope, making a bold proclamation, right? We're confessing. What does it mean to confess? It means to make a bold declaration of our hope. That's Jesus, right? Our hope is salvation. Our hope is heaven. We are called upon to make that bold declaration. My hope is in Jesus and Jesus alone. Now, there's a lot of people nowadays who don't want to make those bold declarations. Well, I might fall. Well, you have no excuse. That's not humility. That's defiance. Because 23 says, a command, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. It's not based on us wavering. It's based on him not wavering. We stand on him. We would stumble. He still stands. Thus, the call is for us to hold fast our confession. It's just part of the application of this book. But then it expands even further in verse 32. A personal appeal to endure. He says, but recall former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. What he's basically saying is this. Hold fast the confession of your faith, all right? Verse 23, we understand that. Verse 32 is, hey, you got too much skin in the game to give up now. You already been through too much mess, and you're still here. Don't throw that away. Our church has been through church splits. We don't have people caught up in sins that split up the whole church twice. And we're still here. Why would we throw that away? The whole point is this. You made too much an investment to give up now. Don't throw away your reward. The reason that we did what we did is because we have a faith that endures. And what we need is a faith that endures to receive the reward. Because you don't get a reward just for doing what's right. You get a reward for doing what's right and staying right all the way to the end. And the whole passage, what we get is kind of the illustration of a football player who's running towards the goal line and somebody is in front of him and he has to go through them. And so he's telling all of us, lower your shoulder and go through him. Do not let him oppose you. You got the momentum. Don't be afraid. Lower your shoulders. Get physical. Go through him and get to the goal. That's why it says, verse 35, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. All the things we've done in this church, we will be rewarded if we are faithful to the end. Those who have left have forfeited their reward. But then he starts to go through this passage, and the whole passage he says, my righteous one will live by faith. 
And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And what is he talking about there is he's talking about enduring even in the face of opposition, even in the face of fear, even in the face of an enemy. We still endure. We don't shrink back. And the reason we don't shrink back is because we have our eyes on the reward. So the whole talking now is about a faith that endures. So that's where you get chapter 11. It's not just talking about faith. It's talking about a faith that endures. It's not talking about faith versus works. It's not talking about a faith amplified by works. No, it's talking about people who are faithful to the very end. And he started it off by saying, my righteous ones shall live by faith. So therefore, if we're going to live by faith, we got to know what faith is. And that's where verse 1 comes in. Now, the New King James Version, I like the ESV, but the New King James Version is just better for these verses here. I'm not just saying that because of taste, it's study. And it says, faith is the evidence of things hoped for, the substance of things not seen. And that may seem to us to be philosophical, but what he's saying is something very simple. If it's the evidence of things hoped for, faith is the impact that God has on the heart. It's the evidence of things hoped for. In other words, when you have faith that you will be in heaven, God impacts the heart. It's the substance of the unseen. It's the impact of the spiritual on us. When we have faith, what we understand is this, that we live in an intersection between the spiritual and the physical world. When you have faith, you start to understand there's more to this world than just what you can see. And the things that we can see are impacted by things that we cannot. So when we go out there and we see people who have wickedness, it's not just because their mother and father mistreated them. It could be because the heart, and the heart could be caused because they are slaves to Satan. Well, we only know those things through faith. We can only see the unseen because we have faith. Faith is the consequence of spiritual reality. When we see somebody who's evil, we understand they're being influenced by a demon. When we see somebody that's righteous, we understand they've been influenced by the Holy Spirit. But you can't understand this through science. You can do a thousand tests, but you will never be able to determine a difference between somebody who has the Holy Spirit and somebody who has a demon. Science will not prove it to you. Only faith will show you those things. He says further on in verse 2, by faith we understand, I'm sorry, by, by it, the people of old received their commendation. Faith is necessary for us to see or receive a good report from God. And the example he gives in verse 3 talks about it. He says, by faith we understand the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Creation is the best example of faith. Because it shows that God who is invisible, 
made things that we see and interact with to this day. And we cannot understand that unless we have faith because we were never there. None of us was there. And there's many Christians who want to say, well, you know, I can't prove that God did create the world. You don't have to prove it. You just got to trust that God did what he said he did. And leave all the arguments to everybody else. You already know what the truth is. You know it by faith. Stop trying to prove everything. Like we all got to be geniuses that figure out everything from the bare essence to figure out 50,000 different principles. If God said he created the world, he created the world, and that should be the end of the matter. He then starts to get into some people. He talks about Abel. Abel had faith because he offered, right? He gave an offering of faith. And it was received because he was faithful. Not because the offering was better. Not because God likes meat instead of salads. No, it was accepted because his heart was faithful. And that should have an impact on us because we should understand, man, when I come into service, God is testing my offering based off of my faithfulness, not based off of my skill, not based off of my talents. There can be a great solo that God doesn't like. And that could be a song that's sung out of tune that God loves. Because God is looking at the heart that offers, not the gift itself. Enoch pleased God. He walked with God and he was not because God took him. And as you go through this, what you're going to understand is this, that the writer is simply walking through the scripture. He expected us to have read from Genesis all the way through. And so he's simply following the road of Genesis, right? He started off Abel. Now we're going to Enoch. And he says, well, Enoch, he walked and he was not because God took him. He pleased God. And then he says this, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because to please God, you have to believe two things. One is that he is and one that he rewards. And if you don't believe both of those things, you will never please God. It is necessary to believe he exists. It's necessary to believe he rewards those who diligently seek him. And so what we get from that is that he is not an arbitrary God, that he just slaps some people and blesses some people. He rewards those who diligently seek him. In other words, he rewards the good and he punishes the evil. And if you don't believe that, there's no way you can please God. So those who go on the services where the preachers preach, and all they preach about is God being good to everybody, they do not please God. Because the God that wants, is only pleased by those who understand he is a rewarder and a punisher. It talks about Noah. Noah built the ark. But how did he build the ark? It took him hundreds of years to do it, right? Over a hundred years to build that ark. And all the time, people was mocking him. All the time, he saved nobody except for his whole family and probably not all of them. All that time, he endured to the end, building this big old ark by himself with his sons. And as he built this ark, what it's saying is he listened to God. 
He had faith because he listened to God. You know what? And I always say this example. If God was to show up on CNN and say, I'm coming back tomorrow at 7 in the morning, at 7 on 1, the world would be surprised. And the reason is they don't believe God. So even if God said it and they heard it, it wouldn't matter because they don't believe him. Every time the wicked are judged, they're always surprised. Judgment is always a surprise because people don't take God at his word until it finally comes. And then it's too late. Then the pastor just read that. He said, I will laugh at your calamity when it comes. Why? Because you didn't listen to me when you had time. When you could have had faith, you denied it. And now it's time and it's too late. There will come a time when it's too late. Just like people outside of Noah's Ark, banging on the door as the rotters rose. They had faith then, but it was too late. God is saying, trust me now. Trust me today because the judgment is coming. By faith, Noah condemned the world by building that ark. Because when he built that ark, he said, this is where salvation is. And outside of it, that's where punishment is. And you know what? People don't hate Christians that just talk about good. They hate Christians that talk about where salvation is and where it's not. We see enduring faith in Abraham and Sarah. Abraham left his homeland, and he went to a land where he didn't really know where he was going. God didn't give him a map. God just said, go over there. He said, all right. And then God said, you're going to inherit this land. But Abraham had to live in a, in a tent. And I think we missed that point because when you look at it, you can say this, this whole land Abraham owns, but he got to live in a, in a tent. Can you imagine if I say, hey, man, I'm going to own this land over here and I'm going to live in a tent for the next 40 years in it? You'd be like, dude, you crazy. You could build you a house somewhere else. But Abraham trusted in God so much he was willing to live in that tent. And he lived in that tent because he was looking forward to the city of God that only God could build. We'll talk about that later. But Sarah is said to have faith because she believed God and she conceived. Even though they were both too old to have children, scientifically speaking. But what I want to point to you about these two is that faith is not perfect. Enduring faith is not perfect. It simply means that faith wins out in the end. Abraham and Sarah made several mistakes. They first tried to get Abraham a mistress. Then when God promised Isaac, they both laughed at God. It wasn't just Sarah that laughed. Abraham laughed too. He said, oh, God, you got to be joking. Let it be Ishmael. God was like, no, it's not Ishmael. And then he told Abraham again. And then Sarah heard it. She was laughing. She said, oh, no, this is not me. I'm too old for that. And God was like, why is Sarah laughing? Oh, I didn't laugh. Yes, you did. And he pointed out, she was like, okay. But you see, it's not just about one instance. Because in that instance, they didn't trust God the way that they should have. 
But through time, they did trust God. Through time, unbelief was defeated by belief. Faith that endures doesn't mean that we have no doubts. There's all kind of people saying, well, name it and claim it. You just got to believe, don't have no doubts. Listen, it's impossible to have no doubts. <laughs> faith that endures simply means that doubts are getting beaten by faiths. There may still be some doubts, but they just need to be beaten. But the faith needs to be winning the war. He said all of these, in verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And having acknowledged they were strangers and exiles on earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land in which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. You break in scripture down again. Because how many places do we read throughout scripture that he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He says, I am their God. In other words, God is proud to be their God. God made it part of his title. I am the God of. And why is he proud of them? Why do we keep seeing that throughout Scripture? He's simply just trying to explain what we're reading as we should be reading day to day, right? He's simply explaining what we should be reading, what we should be seeing. Maybe it's hard for us to see. But that's what the writer of scriptures is doing for us. He's helping us to see something that we might have missed. He's saying these all died not having received. Abraham did not receive the promised land. All he had was one place where he could bury Sarah and himself. That was it. Isaac had no more than that. And Jacob actually at the end of his life had to leave the promised land and go to Egypt. But they never thought that they were not going to receive it, as we're going to see in the next sections. But they longed for a country. And what kind of country did they long for? A heavenly one. And that divine instinct to long for a different country should be pushed into us. It should be something in our bones. When we turn on the news, we say, man, I don't want to live here anymore. I see all this murder, all this raping, all this stealing. I see these politicians acting like a fool, and I have to say to myself, I don't want to live on this world no more. People talk about Christians like we got our eyes in the skies, like we sitting there saying the world is so great. No, my eyes is in the skies because the world is hell. I'm sitting there looking at this world around me, and I'm saying, where is it going? It's going to hell, Lord. I want to be with you. I'm tired of walking outside and seeing people dressed like they dress. I'm tired of going outside and wondering, is one of our cars going to be broken into? I'm tired of going outside and I got to lock my door. I got to lock my car and I got to put an alarm on my car. And then I got to be ready to fight because somebody might still try to steal it even with that. And then I got to be afraid because if I see somebody throwing out garbage in their car right on the street and I say something, they might shoot me. 
I don't want to live in a world like that. That don't mean I don't want this city to be better. I'm going to fight hard for it to be better, but it's never going to be a place that I want to live because I only want to live in heaven. And you should long to live in heaven too. And the whole point of it is this, let us stop longing for what we can see and long for what God has promised. Because the example for that is in verse 17 through 22, who we call the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. The main characters of the book of Genesis. But it says Abraham, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac. He had a promise. He had waited for it. And that's where we're talking about enduring faith, right? He had waited for 90 years to have a son. Now that he finally got one, God said, kill him. And he was sitting there thinking to himself, man, how is this going to work? And he said to himself, I figured it out. God is going to let me kill him, and he's going to raise him from the dead. That's how much faith he had. He knew what God had said. He knew what God would accomplish, and he said, I, I don't know. You know what? Let me just imagine something that never happened before. God is going to do that. That's how much faith he had. It said, Isaac. Blessed, Jacob and Esau. And what's the whole point of that is this. As we go through the book of Genesis, don't you see this point where Jacob, Isaac, bless Jacob. Isaac, bless Esau. And you might say to yourself, where's the faith in that? The faith is this, that God imbued in these patriarchs the power of prophecy. And he had already promised Abraham that through his seed, they would inherit the land. And then he told them, the younger would be the one that was chosen. And all through his life, Isaac fought that because he loved the older. All through his life, he fought that. And finally, he got tricked. But then he started to realize, I, I can't feel bad about being tricked because this is God's will. God is sovereign. I've been a fool. I've been trying to fight what God's will is because I love my older son, and I still love him. But God didn't choose him. He chose a younger. Oh, how hard that had to be for him to breach that conclusion. But when he did reach it, he blessed his son. Then he said, don't take a wife from here. Go back to my homeland. Get a holy wife. And Jacob, he had all his sons around him, even though he was in the land of Egypt. Even though they had left the promised land because a famine had ravaged it, he sat there with his sons and he blessed them. And he said, go inherit the land. And he took the sons of Joseph and he crossed his hands. And Joseph was like, man, you can't bless the older one like that. And the young, no, Jacob said, no, this is God's purpose. This is God's purpose. I understand it, and I'm going to speak it. And you know what? God's purpose for his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, didn't come out until hundreds of years later. When after Israel split in two, the tribe that led the northern half was Ephraim. Moses. 
is said to have enduring faith. First, his parents had enduring faith because they knew that the king said anybody who keep a male child is going to die. They kept them anyway. And as they kept him anyway, they understood, I believe they understood God's purpose for Moses. I believe that's what it meant, my beautiful. I believe that they knew what God's purpose was for Moses. I believe that Moses knew what his purpose was. I believe that's why Moses murdered that person. Because he felt that he was going to be the one that started a revolution. He didn't realize he'd have to wait 80 years. That's faith that endures. He had to leave. He had to go live in the wilderness as a shepherd. Even though he had been brought up as a prince, he despised being a prince and decided to identify with the people of God because it's rather he would rather be mistreated than to be a prince. That's enduring faith. Verse 29 through 31. We see all the way from Moses to Joshua. He says, by faith, the people crossed the Red Sea. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. And we can pass over it, but this section is about opposition. Because they both crossed the Red Sea. The actions were the same. The Egyptians and the Israelites looked the same when they was going through the Red Sea. But God made a promise to one and not a promise to the other. That's why one perished and one survived. Same action, different promises, different results. People all talk about naming and claiming. They're making their own promises up and they ain't claiming it. And then years later, they don't know why they got all these doubts in God. Because you made your own promises. You know what? The Egyptians is naming and claiming. That's what they is. Oh, yeah, we're going to walk through this too. Because we're going to make it through like you made it through. But did God make them that promise? And that's why the Red Sea fell on them. And that's why the Red Sea is going to fall on all these prosperity preachers. Because when you make your own promises up that God didn't make, it's going to fall. Jesus is the solid rock. And if you build on anything else, you will fall. It's not maybe fall, you will fall. We must build on Jesus. Let's not make promises to each other or anybody else that's not built on Jesus. I'm married to my wife because I trust in Jesus. I don't promise somebody, oh, you're going to get married. How do I know that? Did Jesus tell me that? I might wish for them to be married. But God did not promise them that. God only promised what he did promise. He promised us his spirit. He promised us salvation. He promised us comfort. He promised us love in the church. He promised us direction. He promised us his word. He promised us wisdom. He promised us insight. He promised us discernment. He promised us strength. He got a lot of promises. So we don't need to claim anything outside of that. I get worried when people make promises. If it's not on God's word, 
It's going to fall. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. But notice there's a difference between Jericho and Rahab because they both had their walls fall down. But Rahab survived and Jericho did not. Why? Because Rahab believed God's word. She believed there was no hope in defying God. So I would rather serve him. Through Sunday school this morning, we look at the Gibeonites. They said we would rather be servants than dead. That's faith. They believed God's word more than the Israelites did. He says in verse 32, what more can I say? Right? He would go through all God's word, but it's just not enough time to do all that. So he talks about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets. We see a picture of enduring faith through victory. Through faith conquered kingdoms. Through faith enforced justice. Obtained promises. Stopped the mouths of lions. That's victory. Quenched the power of fire. That is victory. Escaped the edge of the sword. Were made strong out of weakness. Became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their children who were dead. That is victory. But then there's also enduring faith in suffering. He says some were tortured, refusing to accept release. You might say, man, where is that? Isn't that what Peter did? He said to his wife, be faithful to the death as she was being taken away to be crucified. How many times were they tortured and they would say, we're going to stop if you would just simply deny Jesus? And they say, keep going. Because they would rather be tortured than deny Jesus. That's what we're going to need to be because the end is coming. The tribulation is coming. We need to be faithful to the end. It's going to be a sad day. And we look out on our pews and we're going to see how many people are going to still be Christians when it's going to be torture out there. But you know what? It's going to be a glorious day as those pews fill back up, as our faithfulness becomes a witness to what God really called us to. I believe we're going to see so many people in this church, it's going to be unbelievable. And we might be marching because some of us might be dead and killed, but we're still going to be marching. We're going to be singing our own songs. Sweet communion songs. We're going to be singing even with tears in our eyes because we're going to be faithful to the death. And not just faithful to the death, faithful beyond death. All of these heroes did not receive the promise in their lifetime. None of them saw Jesus. None of them saw heaven while they were alive. And the whole point of it is this. We have to be faithful to the death because there's no other choice. You're not going to see heaven here. Until we die, none of us will see heaven. None of us will see the full realization of all God's promises for us. But still we must remain faithful. Chapter 12, he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, 
right? Since we've seen all these heroes, since we've seen all these people that God has put as our examples, he wants us to do three things. The first one is give up your burdens. Give up the weights that so easily beset us. And I really mean that this is separate from the second one, which is going to be to give up sin. But the first one is to give up burdens is I really believe there are many things that we do that are silly, that weigh us down. Some folks are attached to people they should not be attached to. Some folks is letting people live with them that they shouldn't be letting live with them. Some folks is working at places they shouldn't be working at. Some folks is not working when they should be working. These are burdens, weights that keep us from running the race that we should be running in the way that we should be running it. They may not necessarily be something you could say as sinful, right? I don't want to spank my kid because I love my kid too much for that. That's going to become a burden for me. At the same time, if you got your 40-year-old, 30-year-old, 50-year-old child still living in your house, that's a burden for you. And if you don't push that person out, that's a burden that you don't need. You will suffer in this race if you don't push off those burdens. Sometimes it comes with church discipline. Somebody get put out to church and we still trying to maintain a relationship with them. Didn't God say don't have fellowship with them? Let them learn to yearn for the fellowship of the church until they come falling on their knees and say, Lord, I need you. But we so busy trying to be the loving one that we putting our hand in the way of God spanking. And then we wonder why people don't repent when we diminish God's punishment. We need to give up our burdens. We need to give up our sin. We talk about sin. We need to give up our sin. Sin is weighing us down. I need to give up my sin. You need to give up your sin. We love our sin, and we look at somebody else's sin, and we see how nasty it is. It's all nasty. Give it up. And look to Jesus. Because out of all these heroes, there's no hero greater than Jesus. It says, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. None of us was nailed to a cross. None of us had the weight of the world on his shoulders. None of us had to die for somebody else. But he despised the shame. You know, throughout this, one of the things that to me would be the hardest to go through what Jesus went through is knowing that he was doing it for the salvation of man, but being mocked the whole time. That's what I can't get. I, sometimes that's the thing that weighs on me more than the torture. That a people who need Jesus to be saved is mocking him as they save, as he saves them. But he's seated in triumph at the right hand of God because he endured to the end. 
Now, I want to tell you about all these people. They're not perfect. They're just faithful. Abraham and Sarah laughed at God. Noah got drunk. David had Bathsheba. Elijah gave up hope. And Moses struck the rock. And I can go through 50 other different examples of things that they did that was wrong. The point is not to be perfect. The point is to be faithful. Because as we endure with God, you know what? It's almost like all our sin is like water in a towel. And as we are faithful, God just keep on squeezing that towel. Right? And the more we with God, the more we endure, the more the sin falls out. And sometimes that last bit is the hardest to get, isn't it? But God is going to get it out if we remain faithful. And then I look at Jesus who is perfectly faithful because he's the God of creation, born of a virgin, living in moral perfection. He didn't make a single mistake while he was alive, even as he was hated by men. He was crucified and betrayed, but he died for you and me. He rose again to defeat death itself. He ascended into heaven after plundering Satan. He returned to heaven after a job completed, and he sent the Holy Spirit to comfort you and me. None of his job did he leave to anybody else. He endured, and he is still enduring. He's still at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you and me right now. He is faithful. He'd been faithful before the creation of the world, and he will continue to be faithful even as we with him in heaven because we will only be in heaven because of his mercy. He is faithful. So let's go back again to chapter 10, verse 23. It says, Let us hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering, for he who promised, that's Jesus, is faithful. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truths. We thank you, Lord, for calling us to faithfulness. We thank you, Lord, for this memorial of saints that's before us in your word. Help us to live a life that doesn't put all of their sacrifice in vain. Help us to live a life that doesn't put our own sacrifice in vain. Help us to endure to the end so we can receive the reward. In your name we pray. Amen.